If you would like to support the Like Phil podcast, you can like us on iTunes. That's a good thing. Uh, you can share our podcasts with your friends and enemies even. Um, and if you'd like to uh, support us in a more material way, you can become a Patreon supporter of Like Phil. All right. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with film critic Matthew Hayes. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Matthew uh, teaches at Concordia and Marianopolis in film studies. And he's also has a special place in my heart because when I was um, in undergrad, I remember all my friends, we read Matthew Hayes had a regular sort of film criticism in this much, much missed a newspaper called the Montreal Mirror, which is now gone. And we remember it wistfully. And I really hope one day, are, are you going to at some point make a book out of those those articles? I wow. Mean, I asked you about this years ago and it still hasn't happened. Funny you should ask that. I mean, I actually approached uh, because the, because the, um, the, the, the Quebec or the corporation that owned the mirror and eventually shut it. Mm-hmm. They, um, they, they eventually, after a couple of months, uh, after the, the paper was shut, um, they, I think realized that the website was still up. <laughs> so they took it down, which effectively, removed about 15 years of my work from the public record um, in terms of easily being able to access, like if I was teaching Psycho, I could send my students a link to the Janet Lee interview that I did where we talked about working, you know, making Psycho and working with Hitchcock and all these really interesting things, Mm -hmm. discussions I'd had with her. Or when we taught Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I could send them the link to one of the cast members I'd interview with where we talked about making that film. And they, they were, were so good. I mean, they were such good articles. Wow, that's very kind of you. But yeah. it was really fun to have all that stuff. And so I actually approached a couple of local publishers and said, "I, what about collecting a lot of my best interviews? And they said that those, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is they said that those anthologies tend not to sell very well. What's A number one, like a lot of books in Canada <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere. But also they said that um, with, with Canadian publishing, they function a lot on grants and you need to be producing new material for grants. So if I were just to republish a lot of my interviews, but I will do that one day because I want to do that really badly. Mm-hmm. There's enough work that I've got from magazines and newspapers as well as Beyond the Mirror interviews that I did that I'm really proud of that I'd like to see you know, collected. Um, I did 10 years ago um, a book of new interviews, but it was a culmination of a lot of my work, both for the Mirror and popular press and for the advocate in the United States, but also um, my academic work because I was finishing up my master's. And it had been my master's thesis project, which was a collection of interviews with gay filmmakers, queer filmmakers. So that uh, that did really well. I got an award in the States and I was very proud of it. And um, so now I'm working on an anthology of interviews with documentary filmmakers. So that's kind of the next thing I'm working on right now. Okay, that's that's really But I do really miss the mirror and I still have trouble making sense of the city <laughs> without it even though yeah. and the other thing that's really too bad about losing the mirror is when I did a journal when I taught a, used to teach a journalism class I just taught alternative journalism at Concordia uh, this past semester which was really interesting um, but whenever I would teach a feature writing class or any kind of writing class I would you know, get the students to come up with ideas and pitch them and then I would have Alistair or whoever the editor was in to meet with the students and often he like their ideas and so a lot of times I could help the students get their first publication 
And sometimes it would even be a cover story. So they got a few hundred bucks and they got a cover story and they were very excited about it. And it was fun to, it was kind of a gateway drug for a lot of young journalists. <laughs> and now it's, it's. I think the city has really lost something without uh, weeklies. I mean, we we sort of seemed to have too many for a while. There were there was mm-hmm. two competing. The, the Mirror bought up by Quebec when they started EC to go up against Voir an hour. So we had mm-hmm. four weeklies in yeah. a city. We didn't really have the advertising market to actually um, support it. But I think we are really at a loss without those weeklies. And corporate ownership really wasn't good for the weeklies. I mean, the Georgia Strait in Vancouver is still going. Now it's still going in Toronto. And they're independently owned. So I think that the independently owned weeklies worked a lot better than corporate ownership hasn't been good for the media at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting because one of the, uh, you know, one of the questions I want to ask you about all of this is that, um, do you, how have things changed, not just in terms of journalism? Cause I saw, I saw this thing where Chomsky said, uh, in an interview, he said, you know, I, I fear that maybe one of the unintended consequences of media studies has been Fox news. And everything that's happening that we were we were constantly telling everybody that it's all propaganda absolutely and we had no idea what real propaganda would look like absolutely i mean the 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 thing that the mantra that i heard in grad school in the 90s over and over and over again was there is no essential truth yes and it was just all this postmodern theory and i've mm-hmm. thought about this a lot is that um and then we were told well there's there's not one real true story that everyone has a different truth and uh, some Republicans got together with Rupert Murdoch and said, you know, we're never going to win this. We're never going to win it. Um, we're always going to have uh, a media that's that's biased against us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's too critical of the right. Uh, most journalists are liberal. Most journalists are agnostic. We need to have a network that we need to have news that is really going to be slanted in our direction. Yeah. And, you know, nothing like an Australian billionaire on your side. I mean, they just... <laughs> shoveled money into this and it's muddied the waters significantly and now i think it's it's what we're seeing i mean this is the first facebook president the first twitter president the first social media and the first fox news president i mean fox news we see now he he's tweeting pretty much what anyone's saying on fox and friends you know Mm -hmm. which is this sort of incredibly um foolish group of people on this panel who are just really kind of idiots really and they're just (laughs) anything that they're saying he's responding to i mean it's really it's very alarming yeah and so now but it's funny because all the people that came of age like us during this time when it was all about how this is this was considered kind of cutting edge analysis and i don't think anybody if you thought nbc and abc were slanted in this you know whatever neoliberal way however they spun it uh, it, it's really nothing now people are saying there's all this sort of wistful like you know, longing for, oh, can, can we have them back? Well, I, rem- I remember um, in Harper's in that must have been the late 80s or early 90s, there was a, a an article called Blab Scam, and it was about how biased Nightline was under Ted Koppel, that their guests skewed to the right. And now I'm just pining for Ted Koppel. I mean, he was such an excellent <laughs> interviewer mm-hmm. and, and somebody who believed, you know, in, in facts you know, that we could actually have facts, that there were certain facts we could agree upon. And the other thing that's happened with all these, with Fox doing so much commentary and shows like The View, and which I, guilty pleasure, I watch it, (laughs) um, mainly just because Joy Behar occasionally says something funny. But, um, but, you know, there's been this conflation, this ongoing conflation of facts and opinions, which which allows people to talk about, you know, alternative facts. 
and and talk about well you have your facts and I have mine you have your opinion and I have mine as if those things are all just one thing and and I find that interesting but it's it's kind of just it's really become quite dystopic all of this mm-hmm. all the theory that we were talking about it just got picked up by the right and they ran with it and they've just created their own alternative reality where you know guns aren't really a problem and no I mean and they're transgender people working lurking in washrooms waiting to accost children and mm-hmm. you know they've just created these these stories out of whole cloth that that are narratives that are now shaping the law of the laws around us and it's well particularly in the United States it's really 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 alarming mm. Mm. And there's another trend from the 1990s which has gone in a direction that I I personally never anticipated that it would go in that direction um, I think you did, because I remember reading a number of your uh, your reviews where you specifically, um, thank you, uh, where you specifically talked about the limits of irony as a, a way of sort of approaching the world and approaching kind of ideas and politics. But uh, you were one of the only people I th- that I heard that did that. So basically there was this attitude and to some extent you see it in punk, you see it in this reaction against the hippies, the idealism of the, that this was, you know, ridiculous and we're going to be kind of outside and kind of very snide and looking down on people who believe in, you know, big ideas. And this was generally speaking, I think, something that was uh, from people who were coming from the left usually, right? And I don't think what they realized, and you see this with Vice magazine that was coming to life just when you were writing for the mirror when you know all that stuff in the nice vice magazine was starting here in montreal mm-hmm. and now you look at you know quite a few of those people who started with vice are were voting for trump and were trump supporters and actually it's consistent with the attitude they had because they like um they just like watching everything burn it's like they like kind of shaking things up and it's that's fun for them, right? I mean, so what do you what do you think about that? Well, I think it's in, it's interesting. Certainly, um, they had the very famous, notorious rift with Gavin McInnes after he started saying yeah. really racially out there things, um, flagrantly throwing the N word around and other things like that. <clears throat> and of course, recently, but you remember he was doing that when he was coked out at parties in Montreal in the nineties. Yeah, no, he, he would always doing... he loved to be pro- he was provocative. Yeah, he was that like, was he was. Basically, uh, what's his name? Milo. He was Milo. He was like a straight Milo in the nineties. Yeah, absolutely. No, I still remember bumping into him at a Halloween party, and he was. He said, "I'm dressed up as the AIDS guy," and he thought that was. <laughs> he thought that was really side-splittingly hilarious. He oh did things God. like that. <clears throat> um, he was, so, but I always found him to be. I mean, I haven't seen him in a long time. I always found him to be a pretty sort of seemed like a decent fellow to me. Something happened to him when he went down there. And too much Fox News. But <laughs> they, they, uh, but they, uh, it's interesting to see them reposition their brand because, you know, in the last sort of seven, I'd say five to seven years, they've, instead of just putting a pair of tits on the cover and saying, well, some, a sponsor gave us some money, so here we're putting a nude woman on the cover. They've now, uh, try, trying to reposition, they, well, they've effectively repositioned themselves as a kind of, kind of guardian sensibility, like very left-wing, very politically correct, and um, on, the, on the major issues of the day, right? And taking on the, at Charlottesville, taking on the Nazis and all that sort of thing. Um, and so they've had to, because of their... Which is just another kind of pornography. Yeah. I mean, they'll show dead yeah. babies now, right? Yeah. And like, which is also just trying to appeal to people in a very 
guttural way. Right. But they had really picked up on, I think, on the spirit, frankly, of, of the mirror, which was kind of an anything goes, let's be sensational. If it bleeds, it leads. If if it's tits, if it's got tits, it fits. Kind of sensibility. <laughs> I've never heard that. Kind of that. sensibility. And then they they spun that for a long time. And, and of course, lad culture, the lad magazines in Britain. So they were playing on a lot of that. Like, we don't care. It was, it was a fuck you to feminine, second wave feminists, for mm-hmm. sure. And now that second wave feminism has come back into vogue with the Me Too movement, um they well they just had a shuffle where they've put a woman in charge and they've they've kind of apologized for these gotten rid of some guys who were you know acting inappropriately with women sexually harassing women mm-hmm. so that it's just interesting to see how they're realigning themselves in these times you know we'll see the battle lines are being drawn yeah i mean i just i see it as a continuation of that you know the kind of piss off the bourgeoisie, the, the modernist idea of like, as long as you're pissing off the bourgeoisie and you're scandalizing them, then you must be doing something right. And that's, I, I see that spirit has carried over into what Gavin is doing now and a lot of his projects. And it's also a general thing you can see among a lot of people that are sort of alt-right where they, you know, I'll, I'll ask them, I say, you know, like, look, Trump has stabbed you in the fucking back, like on so many things that you said you liked about him. Yeah. Uh, he's gone back on that. He hasn't drained the swamp. He hasn't um, actually reined in um, America's sort of presence overseas. The whole idea of America first, we're not going to try and be the world's policeman anymore. All these things that you said you were voting for, he hasn't actually done. And the response I get from them almost all the time, from my you know friends and family members who are Trump supporters in the States, is they say, well, you know what? He's still pissing off um, liberals, right? Which is how David from, of, you know, Axis of Evil fame, uh, Canadian, David from in his recent book, Trumpocracy, which is very, very good, by the way. Uh, in Trumpocracy, he says, basically... Uh, much of conservatism now is just fuck you leftists. Yeah. Like that's, that's his exact frame. And Michael Moore, Michael Moore said it too. Yeah. Right. And so, but I see that as actually being in a way, a connection to this punk um, irony <coughs> attitude, which is that we're just, we're always going against whatever the mainstream is. And I don't think people realized, I mean, I saw you, you mentioned this in your, articles a number of times. I know Martha Nussbaum was also sort of, you know, waving a flag saying, watch out. This is actually, um, if if you don't define what being subversive is more carefully, then ripping down the posters for the campus gay and lesbian sort of meeting center is subversive. That basically whatever happens to be um, popular at the moment, uh, that whatever people care about, you know, because Gavin McInnes, if you watch him, his whole sort of shtick seems to boil down to, I make fun of people who care about shit, any shit. Yeah. Like, if people are earnest and they they get sort of fired up and they, they care about something genuinely, then I'm going to make fun of you. So, and that's the, the constant refrain. And I, I just don't think a lot of people realized how easily that could be used for anything. I completely agree. I mean, each generation has its own sense of what is um, revolutionary or, or rebellious. But we have to keep in mind that um, the the people who who Trump appealed to overwhelmingly were older people. So we can look at demographics. We can see also that this repeated 
um, discussion of the white working class wasn't really true. Most of the working class voters actually favored Hillary over Trump. But, um, you know, when I looked at, when I poured over all the data after the wake of the election, because I was frankly pretty shocked, I think like m most people, I really thought that Hillary Clinton was, was going to be the president. Um, and she should have been really, the Electoral College is a scam. But uh, when I poured over all the data, the, the chart that probably gave me the most hope was looking at how younger people were voting overwhelmingly for her. I mean, they could see through Trump and they didn't buy into his faux rebellion. They knew he's just a pathological liar. And furthermore, um, all of the things he was saying about the environment, which he's following through with, reversing all the executive orders that Obama did about, you know, and appointing someone in the head of the EPA, Pruitt, who is an avowed, wants to tear it apart. He, he said repeatedly in, in the past that he wanted to end the EPA. So, I mean, it's disaster capitalism, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, but I think young people don't want that. I, you know, most of the, and I you know, teach younger people uh, at Concordia, but also very, much younger people at Marianopolis, 16 through 20 is the demographic there. And they're, they're very woke. <laughs> they, they know, you know, they know what this is about. You know, they know what this is about. They don't have a problem with a, uh, a gay teacher. They don't have a problem with LGBTQ youth. They don't have, they, they, they understand that multiculturalism is the only way forward in terms of how to, how to have a policy that accepts and, and, and welcomes people from different places into a country we we're not we're we're, we're we can't we're, how are we ever going to go back to what is this neo-nationalism how are we going to go back to a lily white america there's no way i mean you've got the fastest growing demographic are latinos that's not going to stop you can you can ban muslims at the border you can deport people who who came as children you can do that all that and look really inhumane but it's not going to change the the uh, ethnic racial makeup of the united states mm -hmm. it's a it's a fantasy it yeah. really is. It's all been just a delusional but what I, fantasy. What I think is interesting is, I, I, I mean, the, the numbers totally bear out what you just said. In fact, this is something that, you know, they've looked at in terms of attitudes towards, towards on racism, on kind of openness to people of various sexual orientations and all that stuff. It actually holds true that even in, like, many very, very red states, um, in very conservative areas in uh, right, indeed, right wing areas in Canada and the United States, even there, young people overwhelmingly are fine with these things. I find that kind of fascinating because what it tells me is that because often they are fine with that sort of stuff, but not from a kind of principled political stance, but from a much more sort of knee jerk, just emotional stance. And this is why, and I think the reason for this is my, my theory is I think that actually is because of movies and TV mm. and popular culture, yeah. which shape, I mean, you look all the way back to Plato's Republic when they're talking about building this city and speech, this sort of totalitarian society. Um, they specifically say they're going to kind of ban the poets and they're going to ban because they understood very, very clearly that the storytellers have way more power than the priests, because they are the ones that that sort of form what what Martha Nussbaum calls the narrative imagination, right? So, and this is a way in which I actually think, paradoxically, the Christian right in the 1980s and the early 1990s, they were actually right when they were trying to ban uh, depictions of gay characters on TV. They they were actually seeing things very clearly. I, I would say Modern Family. That one show has done more for gay rights in the United States than 
any of the movements because what it's done is it's it's brought this uh, these characters these completely kind of fascinating interesting totally human believable characters into everybody's living room and made them members of the family and people they like and that is so much more dangerous you know than any kind of people marching well, in the street absolutely and joe biden even said when he was asked about his about supporting same-sex marriage he he, he mentioned will and grace and oh said, wow. i watched that so i completely agree and it's one of the reasons why it, it's uh, you know being a very political animal I, it was hard to separate that from all the film reviewing and television reviewing that i was doing talking about popular culture and you can you can trace that culture we're back a long way i mean they 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 Victorians didn't like Freud, and um, the the Puritans in the mid-20th century didn't like Alfred Kinsey and what he was saying and doing. And the Catholic League of Decency did not like it whenever a studio announced that they were adapting another Tennessee Williams play. And actually, <laughs> you can look back at uh, all of these film versions of Tennessee Williams plays that are so famous and see the way that sexual themes were reduced or were became much more suggestive and less um less extreme less overt and became yeah. covert oh, the classic is yeah. streetcar named desire streetcar named My desire I mean, I mean there's that but there's you know cat in a hot tin roof there's suddenly last summer um and they there's as you say they were right there's a good reason if you start putting this stuff up on screen these representations and if you start reading about it and you start seeing it in popular media like film and television um it it normalizes it i mean i even thought about this when i was watching uh, big love the series about uh, the polygamists <laughs> and Mormons, because oh, as, yeah. I, as I watched that show, uh, probably starting going into it, I you know I thought, well, there's reason, reasons we have laws against polygamy. <laughs> um, I've, usually, the, the cases that are brought to the courts are are dubious ones where you've got you know children being married, and it just looks like pedophilia, so it doesn't look great, and then child slavery and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. sex slavery. But when you watch um, Big Love, by the end of the fifth season, I was like, you know, if somebody wants to live like that, it's their business, right? I yeah. was kind of like, kind of, yeah. the representation kind of changes things. And the, yeah. the smart thing about that show is that they didn't make fun. They, they took the people seriously. They took yep. the, the polygamists at face value. So, and of course, they put Bill Paxton, a likable actor, as the central guy married to all these women. So um, I think that that, that really does it. I mean, the other reason for this, the huge success of the LGBTQ movement is that, um, Unlike, uh, say, race movements like the black civil rights struggle, there usually are within a family, you know, within an extended family, there's a gay uncle or a lesbian sister or something. Yeah. And so by the end of all that, you know, at the end of the day, even in conservative families, people start to come out and then people start to get more defensive when it's in their family. People shouldn't act that way. You shouldn't have to be within your family for somebody to respond. But once that happens, I mean, famously... Dick Cheney was asked. Yeah, I was just going to. I was just going to say. <laughs> are, do you support the am proposed amendment by President George W. Bush to ban same sex to make marriage between a man and a woman? And he said, "I don't." And he brought up his daughter, and, and notably, it wasn't a journalist who asked. It was a. It was at a town hall meeting. It was a member of the public who asked him. A journalist felt afraid to ask certain questions. Oh, they always do. But that was one that was seen out of the parameters of the polite to ask him about that because they were talking about your lesbian daughter, even though she was openly lesbian. She had a position at Coors, which was gay outreach, so she had a position. Her job title had it in it. Mm -hmm. But journalists were afraid to ask. So once that happens, and I think that's why we've seen such an. A huge shift, but I think you're right. I think it's also representations in the media. I think that's just dramatically changed things. Um, 
to think that, you know, there was an episode in, I think, 1973 or 74 of the Mary Tyler Moore show where they had a character who happened to be gay and it was just, and someone said he's gay and there was, it was a huge laugh line. It was a shocking thing that he was gay and that they said that on network television to think that that was a big deal. I mean, now we're at such a different place, as you say, all these different shows, of course, now with, with the other, the other dystopic nightmare in the media is now, of course, we have a splintering of audiences. So, um, you have all these Hallmark movies, holiday movies and uh, Trump supporters love them because there's they don't have any gay characters there's no racial politics there's certainly no trans characters so you tune I'm in I'm unfamiliar with what you're talking oh, about Oh these ha- Hallmark Christmas movies oh you haven't seen them I've been fo- no. posting them on Facebook I've never even heard They're just they're god awful then Hallmark is churning them out they're these family friendly movies like about the the holiday. card maker Yeah they yeah. they make movies now They make movies My and God. they're hugely popular with a certain demographic, guess who in America. <laughs> and so people can kind of just choose to watch what they want. It's like, you know, uh, part of our bubble is what media we choose to consume. But do they actually have the the kind of viewership? Because I've what I've always seen when they, when they break this stuff down is that, uh, well, first of all, red states on average uh, consume way more pornography. Like <laughs> uh, internet companies have been saying this for years. They consume way more pornography on average than blue states. They have higher divorce rates on average than blue states. They have, uh, so there's, and also when it comes to, I think it was you, I think it was a review by you in the, where you actually, we're talking about the, the numbers on this and some of these shows that were quite scandalous and were pushing the envelope, like HBO, early HBO stuff, mm-hmm. it was actually being consumed a great deal in these places. So I wonder if, I mean, Maybe those Hallmark movies are doing well, but I, I suspect the the kids are still watching reruns of Six Feet Under. <laughs> I, we can hope. Yeah, we, we can <laughs> hope. I mean, it's hard to know what anyone what anyone's viewing habits are. Um, no, no. Yeah. But if you but the the New York Times and the Washington Post have some pretty good analyses of these films and who they're popular with. And oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now something's ringing a bell. Is this? With the guy who was on, he was the kid on Growing Pains, and he's become like a kind of an actor in kind of no those Christian I've, right movies. Those he's I've like a seen, firefighter. And those stuff like I've that. seen too. Those are very weird. But these these are um, <laughs> these are holiday films, and they produce more of them every like they produce like thirty or forty of them a year because they're hugely popular with people. And I think they're actually on the Hallmark Channel, and basically they're um, they start with uh, you know a budding romance. And then something threatens that romance, so by the end they have to come together and it has a happy resolution. And there just won't be any threatening stuff in them. They're mm-hmm. going to be happy and sweet. And I think people like Mark Harmon and other actors That's are, the guy. are, Harmon, are yes. starring in yeah. it. Yeah, so uh, they're, you know, they're, they're pretty treacly. I mean, they're pretty dreadful, <laughs> but they're kind of funny. And there's somebody, there's a... Um, uh, I've forgotten his name. They're going to turn campy he, like Rocker Hort. Well, Rocky Hort. Somebody's going to like... So just... there's a writer in California who reviews each one. Every one he reviews <laughs> and posts his reviews on Facebook. I think his, uh, Mike, like, I think his name is Michael straight? Thomas Ford. Or... No, he's he just reviews it, but tells it like it is. But okay. it's actually pretty funny. Like he's taking each one kind of seriously. And it's like they're they're obviously just churning them out. And, you know, some computer software somewhere is writing them, right? So... Well, what, one of the things I find interesting with the, the kind of the representation of of gay characters in TV and movies is that, you know, back in the day when you had like Will and Grace, everybody was like looking 
at his character with a, you know, just very carefully trying to find fault with him. Like, that's a stereotype. He flames too much. That's not like, and, but now we have so many, we have characters on the wire. We have, you know, six feet under these, you know, sort of full red blooded characters that are just very complicated and they have a lot of stuff going on that now there's just, it's just not freighted that way. Yeah. So now, you know, um, on, uh, on modern family, right. You can have somebody who's like, you know, flaming like a warm fire and nobody cares because you know what there's just so much diversity out there yeah i mean it's uh, well yeah and i think that's um what i've called the weight of limited representation if you only have one or two representations then everyone i like that phrase the weight of limited, limited rep representation that's a good line yeah and it's uh, i wrote uh, i was talking about it and i wrote a wrote that in cineast because i was reviewing an anthology about boys in the band which is a very controversial play come movie that was eventually a William Friedkin film in 1970, but um, it it basically had this group of gay men who were very tormented and are sort of getting drunk and stoned in the course of an evening and 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 are you know taunting each other and having and this is a sort of a birthday party that becomes really very dark. It's a f sort mm -hmm. of famous work of existential fiction, but it was very controversial when it came out. And Edward Albee just died, uh, the existential playwright, he famously passed on producing it. He said, this is the wrong time, right? It's too Late hot. Six. It's too negative. It's too nasty. So ever since then... Uh, I've never seen it. It's really worth... The film is really worth seeing. And what's remarkable about it is that the cast from the play recreated their roles. And they all of them, almost all of them, were gay men playing gay men. So that was still unusual to this day. Uh, and it's a tremendous piece of work. It's devastating. It's very unhappy. So to this day, it's still a very complicated, polarizing piece of work, right? Because some people just don't want to see something that's that dark. In fact, they're yeah. going to do a, a Broadway revival of it with Zachary Quinto, I think is going to be in it, uh, coming up soon. So it's going to, it's back, it'll be back in the news again. Um, but now, as, as you're saying, now there's so, so much more that, it's why, uh, it's funny, it's when I first heard this, this discussion that the character of Apu on The Simpsons was offensive, I I was like, ah, come on, it's The Simpsons. You know, we've got everyone, everyone is skewered on the show. And, and yeah. you know, I would bring up Smithers and say, well, there's the gay character, but I think he's funny. But in thinking about it, Smithers is funny because in the 25 or 30 years that The Simpsons has been on the air, we've seen many more gay representations. So it's not such a big deal. And The Simpsons has been part of that with like parts for Harvey Fierstein and John Waters, you know, and Scott Thompson doing gay, gay characters. So, but we still don't really see many Indian representations. So for a lot of young people growing up that they would be tormented, that they would be told, you know, thank you, come again, the accent. And I was, I was sort of saddened to hear that Hank Azario does the voice of who was was imitating Peter Sellers, who did one of the most famous <laughs> representations in of, the party. In, in the party, that's oh, where he got the accent from. I had no idea. Yeah, and I mean, I've talked to Indian actors who say, you know, when we, when we were growing up, that was really all we had. So, you know, when when uh, Merchant Ivory Productions would call, we would look at the representation and say it's not perfect, but we got to get as many Indian representations as we can out there, even if it's not perfect, because we've got we've got the party to go on. That's it, right? Yeah, it's Peter Sellers doing this horrible minstrel act, right? Yeah. So, um, it's not even good. That's the funny thing because I grew up with a lot of South Asians, and yeah. so I knew I, I'm not very good at it anymore. But when I was a kid, I could like make fun of various different South Asian accents. Like I would just copy my friends' dads and stuff, and. So I remember, and I, they would make fun of their dads, you know, their 
their voices, you know, the way Sugar Sammy does and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but Peter's the first time I saw the party, I thought, well, that's they, nobody sounds like that. Like that. <laughs> that's not gonna make. That's not gonna make any South Asian kid laugh. That not, was, not because of the racism thing, just because you got it wrong. That that was the big New Year's movie. That was the we in Edmonton. I don't know if anywhere else, but the Princess Theater, the Repertory Theater, they would show it on New Year's Eve, and everyone would go and see it. And it was a big, funny, hip thing to do is to see the party and laugh your ass off. I never found it that particularly funny. The other one, the I mean, the other one, other representation that what was so famous at Yellowface was in um, so-called Yellowfaces in Breakfast at Breakfast at Tiffany's, where Mickey Rooney plays the Asian landlord and. I actually asked him about that when I interviewed him, and he said, oh, I didn't know that was controversial. He said, in the <laughs> 90s, he said, I didn't know that. And he said, but, you know, I I just hope no one is offended by that. And I'm like, well, how could you not know? Everyone's been talking about it forever. Like, you're, he was he was really a major loon. He was really a crazy person, but anyway. <laughs> well, maybe he's just out of touch and not paying attention. I mean, like, I know apparently Woody Allen doesn't uh, watch TV. He doesn't read the newspapers. He's completely he's blissfully out of touch with a lot of that stuff so he he doesn't uh yeah. no mickey rooney did M mickey rooney gave me a whole riff on the media including that clint eastwood was going to hell because he'd, he'd made midnight in the Car garden of good and evil which had a drag character in it a black drag character so he would trans character so he was offended by that and said um you know that ellen meant we were all going to hell in a basket because ellen was on tv and you know he was just really he yeah. was really all fired up about god and that sort of thing so anyway but it was it was a kick to interview mickey rooney i gotta say i think he was probably just he was really tired of gay journalists asking about judy garland <laughs> i think that's probably what his what was up his ass yeah i thought it was a fascinating moment sort of where kind of narrative and political realities crossing was when uh barack obama said that his favorite show on TV was The Wire, and his favorite character was Omar on The Wire, uh, right? Which yeah. is, and Omar was a very fascinating character to have. I mean, here's this incredibly violent and hyper masculine uh, character who's also incredibly tender and loving towards his boyfriend, and is, you know, just this weird. You know, it doesn't. It went against a lot of stereotypes. Yeah, like, big time. I mean, Omar's no hairdresser. No, you know, he's not a. He's um, so. But it was interesting. Barack Obama saying that. It well, was, I, I, th and I think it's really interesting to look at um, the popular culture that you know political leaders are are consuming. Um, uh, there's a great book called Nixon at the Movies, which talks about the films that he was interested in seeing and his reflections on them. And it's just fascinating to read that oh, stuff. Oh, i never read that. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a great book. And I've read like sort of Hitler and Stalin's weird tastes in movies, but I didn't know about Yeah, Nixon's. Hitler loved King Kong, right? And <laughs> Am, yeah. He, there were certain so films weird. that he loved. Yeah, I know yeah. they're really strange, that things and that he Westerns. really appreciated. Wanted Western, yeah. I wonder why that would be. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's very telling. So Nixon was into Nixon like, was, but the Nixon. I mean, the Nixon era is so rich in terms of popular culture. Because you know, on television, you had All in the Family, which was just the family screaming at each other about what was going on, right, right down to every election. Um, and then you know, I, I like I teach Dirty Harry. I mean, that's a really interesting film. Ah, so what's wow? What, what's your take on Dirty Harry? Well, it's it's the obvious one. I mean, I just think Pauline Kael called it. You know, this is fascism, right? And and then there was all this sort of blowback, but. The thing about it, what's really fascinating is that it was really, the screenplay was a direct response to the Miranda decision, right? Which says, well, you have to read someone, you have to treat a prisoner a certain way when you arrest them. You, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't torture them. You can't, you have to get a lawyer for them and blah, 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 and read them their rights. 
And so the the screenplay is really a response to that. And, and what's really interesting is the way it shaped people's perceptions of law and order. I mean, it still does. I mean, the fact that Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood was like the most famous guest speaker at the Republican National Convention five years ago. I mean, it's still very much a part of the way people see law and order and crime and punishment. And, you know, Reagan quoted him, Make My Day, in one of the subsequent sequels. He says, Make My Day. So Reagan actually quoted him. What do you think him. the connection between Dirty Harry and Watergate is? This is something that's always kind of puzzled me. I mean, in terms of the... I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. But it, it seemed to me that there's some relationship between the attraction of that movie and the idea that people trying to come to terms with the fact that the law and order candidate broke the law flagrantly and sort of trying to sort of rationalize that, look, in a broken system, sometimes you need a thug to get things done, which, yeah. of course, as you said, is is fascism's argument all the time. And so, I mean, do you think there's a connection? Absolutely, there absolutely because uh, if anything, Watergate just shone a light on the hypocrisy of, you know, law and order, unless you're unless you're the president, you know, and then we're seeing we're obviously seeing echoes of that now, which is that um, tr Trump's lawyer saying, well, and his people saying, well, he can't have broken the law because he's the president. So he is the law. Right. So he can just do whatever he's just, just totally attacking like a tin pot dictator, you know. Um, and I think it's interesting as it relates. It's very interesting as it relates to Nixon. Nixon was still. Um, popular uh, among a lot of Republicans, um, and uh, but he knew because I think that I think the Democrats are taking control of Congress by that point, and I think that he knew that there would be impeachment hearings. So he actually realized that he'd done something wrong, which I don't think Trump will ever admit to that. And so Nixon knew that he had to go. Um, mm -hmm. So there were no impeachment hearings. He resigned under threat of it. So that's I mean I think that's a really telling moment. At least it's somebody who's a re who was really awful, but he sort of kind of knew he'd done something <laughs> bad, knew that there were going to be there was going to be comeuppance. Whereas Trump, who is so similar to him in certain ways, the paranoia and everything else, and the list of enemies, and hating the media, hating Hollywood, um, he I don't think he I don't think I don't think he just thinks he's uh, completely above anything. Yeah, know? I don't I have I don't know. He he seems to me like somebody who's just doesn't spend too much time kind of second guessing himself. Right. And I say that, you know, I mean, there's a way to hear that in a judgmental way, but I, I don't exactly mean it in a judgmental way. I just mean that he just seems like one of these people that's very emotional, like a very emotional person. And I've known people like this who are delightful, actually, um, because if, if your instincts are really kind and, and generous and sweet, then, you know, there's people like that that are wonderful. I mean, they just they're spontaneously warm and generous and open and kind. And so he seems to me like somebody who's who's just a very emotional person. He just goes with what he feels and he doesn't second guess it very much at all. And unfortunately, you know, what is in his soul is is not all kind. It's not, you know, a lot of it is pretty, as you say, resentful. And um, he, he seems like one of these people. And I, I like your comparison to Nixon because there is this you almost need Nietzsche to understand like Nixon and Trump that there's this sense that they can conquer the world and yet they're still they still feel like the underdog they still feel like they are uh, potentially um, under threat all the time there's still this ch chip on their shoulder like you think you're better than me you think you're better than me it's, it's like how can you still think of yourself as the underdog when 
you're president of the United States. You won. Well, that's that. Someone put it very well. A commentator said, "You know, there are poor losers, and then there are, there are sore winners, right? It's like you guys oh, won, and you're still going on all the time, and I was going crying. on and on yeah. and on about basically like your victims, and now they've created like Fox News, right? They've been the biggest news station for 16 years, but they're still the underdog that's against still the mainstream, and they're still media. talking about the mainstream. Exactly, you are the you mainstream are the mainstream. Media. The mainstream. Would you just own it? Like, yeah, but you know, uh, the, now there's this southern narrative that Fox has created, you know, the deep state. So there's like this idea that there are people, operatives at the FBI and CIA who are still loyal to Obama and Hillary and the Democrats who are intentionally trying to sabotage everything that Trump does. So if anything goes wrong, he can just switch gears to that that other narrative um, and say, well, I'm really the victim in all of this. And um, I, I'm just it's just incredible to me that anyone believes anything he says, but it you know, people are doing it. It's just not that shocking anymore, really. Um, people obviously kind of want to true lies you know they want to buy <laughs> yeah. into, speaking of another movie they want to buy into the, the true lies right they know that they know i mean shania twain just got into trouble because she said well at least he he's honest so he's honest about the fact that he's constantly lying and the big defense when people say that he's lying like megan mccain will always go to this de facto position which is well all politicians lie so it's almost like at least he's upfront about his lying right yeah i'm actually i just finished listening to this podcast called slow burn which is all on have you have you watergate. listened to it it's yeah. all on watergate mm -hmm. it's just fascinating but the parallels are astounding and in fact there was a i'm blanking on his name but there was a journalist in the middle of the whole watergate situation who published this sort of satirical list of the ways in which a nixon supporter deflects attention from watergate and it's almost word for word what you hear now with the whole Russia investigation. And uh, it's sort of, if if this, then say this. If this is like the Jesuits telling you how to argue, you know, theology. So the, if this, and one of them was, um, if you are cornered and it seems like it's true, then say, well, everybody does it. They just got caught for doing what everybody does. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's doing it, why can't we, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's a kind of, it's a kind of a cynicism that's, very dangerous and one of the things to, to return to what we were talking about just uh, you know a while ago is it's a cynicism that actually i had to some extent inculcated in me when i was at concordia in the 90s because that was like the fashionable thing this sort of ad busters reading you know kaylee lazen type it was this incredible cynicism which now has actually undermined faith in democratic institutions and voting we were told all the time, you know, I had like blue hair and at the time and I was and we were told voting was just a scam and it's all a rigged system. And this these ideas have really gone to some dark places. And yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. And, and people who are still arguing that now, I have uh, I find I have less and less patience for them on the left who are still saying that. Like, can you still say that truth doesn't matter and voting doesn't matter? Like now, really? Yeah, remember like, I remember the the rift in grad school. I mean, there were the sort of there were the the Chomsky followers who said, "Well, this this has real ramifications." You know, the, the neo Marxists, and then the postmodernists were always quoting Foucault, and you know, it's a, there will always be an oppressor no matter what. And uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I it was pretty nihilistic. The postmodernists. Mm -hmm. I mean, they better parties. So I went to their parties, but. <laughs> They, they, they were more fun. They but really did. Yeah, yeah, they, they were. You yeah. know, the lines of coke were flowing. But I, but I didn't, I didn't. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't ever really 
agree with that. And I was one of those sort of evil people who was said, well, a centrist is better than a right wing politician mm-hmm. and uh, advocated strategic voting and all the rest of it. And, you know, is still getting called a, a neoliberal whore because I said, well, <laughs> better get out and vote for Hillary I'm with Fran Lebowitz. No, just get out. Yeah. there. Yeah, this is she's we, my favorite person right now, because <laughs> if it's not her, it's Trump. So just get out and vote for yeah. her, you fools. Yeah, we had actually um, Kimberly Manning on the podcast recently, who's running for the Liberal Party. And she's uh, taken taken a fair amount of heat from this because she's the head of the Simone de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia. Uh, she's a political scientist. She's also been a, a real trans activist. She has a uh, trans daughter who I actually have known for a long time. She was in my day camp that uh, my wife and I ran for quite a while. Uh, but um, yeah, and she came on and she, and so one of the first questions I asked her, I said, Kimberly, you know, what the fuck? Like you're running for the liberals. Why not the NDP? You know, and I, I said, uh, you know, the stats are that Canadian, there's been a real shift in North America in academia. If you were to go back to, let's say 1990, the, uh, the political orientation of, people like professors was uh, I mean definitely it was it was more towards the the left for sure but there was actually quite a balance right there's been a massive shift and there's a number of reasons for this but there's been a massive shift just in the last uh, 20 years 25 years so now uh, the right now uh, over 90 percent of Canadian academics uh, voted NDP in the last election and they so it basically academia has become sort of are you center left to far left right and there's there's practically no conservative voices or even centrists are sort of embarrassed right in in most departments now so i asked her i said like why in this context as a professor as a professor you're heading the Civil institute you know the most radical institute at concordia uh, and her response was you know this liberal government is the most progressive government that we've had in Canada in 40 years. What do you think of that? Do you, do you buy that? Well, I think uh, certainly um, I've been following uh, the pipeline misery the last you know week or so, week or two, and, it, and it's been very odd. And actually my take on that was that there was a kind of genius to what Justin Trudeau was doing, and that is saying, oh, I support the pipeline so that he could show up, keep his support in Alberta, which he does have some support there in the West, which is pretty amazing because his last name is Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that the pipelines are just going to fail. I mean, unless unless oil is $100 a barrel, they just don't make much sense to invest billions of dollars in building them. So I think his sense was that it was going to, that these projects, they already were falling apart, right? They were being canceled by corporations. Um, that's why I'm a little surprised to be, see him really digging his feet in and actually pledge, pledging taxpayer dollars to Kinder, Mor- you know, Kinder Morgan Project, which is mm-hmm. really, really, really a bad idea. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but but there are so many other things when um, Jesse Brown says in a New York Times op-ed piece that, uh, frankly, there's really very little difference between Harper's conservative, the previous conservative government liberals. He couldn't be more wrong. I that mean, was a vicious op-ed. That was a very oh. strange, but that paragraph was just so odd because, I mean, I listed on social media just just a few of the of the stark differences, the attitudes towards science and information which is really, really important. We have some of the best statistics kept in Canada Mm -hmm. around the world. We're notorious for them and famous for them. And we need that statistical evidence so that we can act on data and the truth and the facts. Um, And the government was doing its best to unravel those things in in the same way that Trump is doing now in America. 
Um, the attitude towards refugees and immigrants obviously is hugely different. The attitude towards LGBTQ rights. Um, they passed uh, protection for trans people. That's really important. They they did you know they've done some really important things. The fact that half the cabinet are women, and I, I mean I keep hearing people saying uh, I hear some people cynically say, well that's just that's just you know a kind of boutique feminism, but it's not. I mean the cabinet minister holds obviously some power over their portfolio. They're not just figureheads and the, the women who've been appointed that are, issue has always that eminently that whole discussion has seemed to me that's shows almost completely besides the point that shows a political will yeah. and, and it was the liberals before it was jean under jean chrétien that we had the first um perfectly gender balanced supreme court in the world so equal number of male and female judges that's not just symbolism that's extremely important that we have uh, courts and political representation that reflects the population. Um, and um, we, women are still too what often about, undervalued. What about meritocratic? Why Shouldn't everything just be meritocratic? And yeah, we... I know. That was, uh, and people were making those statements. And, and then, but now they see how qualified the, the cabinet ministers are generally, by and large. I mean, we're having people trip up every now and then, but no worse than any other government or better than any other government. No, I think it's a, that's extremely important. So I, so why do I you don't, think it, why do you think it's important? Cause I, I, I'm very fascinated by this because I, I think it's important, but whenever I've explained my rationale, people are looking at me like I have three heads, but I'm curious, why do you think it's important to have a gender equal cabinet? Well, because for women to look at government and see no, no women, at the table when decisions are being made. For example, I mean, there's sort of famous photographs where um, an all group of, of older men are signing a bill that affects women's reproductive rights. Um, that That's just absurd, and, and people can see it's absurd. It feeds into cynicism about dem democracy generally. Um, and it kind of, it's kind of handmaid's tale-y, you know? <laughs> so I think that um, it's really important that we have more women represented in government. Now, it's going to sound like vulgar essentialism. Some people have put forth the argument that women uh, do um, do reach compromise in a way that that is different than the way men do. Um, the compromises that have happened in Congress in the last five to ten years, apparently a lot of them have been brought about by uh, women's congressional, women's Congress, a caucus within Congress, um, that a lot of women are better reaching across lines and less polarizing um, so they can work together to talk about how issues affect them. Um, so I think, I think that's really important. Obviously women are just going to have a, a bit of a different perspective on things like childcare. We also see women are, women are usually a lot less reluctant to support, um, initiatives of, around military intervention and war. So we see certain issues where women seem to Thatcher react. Thatcher seemed to be pretty fine with it. Thatcher did, Gandhi. <laughs> I mean, people always there's bring up Thatcher, you know, there's a few, and there's Sarah Palin. I mean, there's, you know, there's yeah. nut jobs around who are, are obviously, uh, it isn't to say that necessarily that women are better, but women do have different ways of looking at things. I just think yeah. it's I just think it's really important that government um, be be represented. I mean, it just seems obvious to me. I know yeah. I know that some people are very cynical about diversity because the word gets bandied about so yeah. much now, right? Oh well, there, there's ways in which it can be implemented, with, which are you know terrible, right? And I definitely think you want to have competent people. Uh, in you know in power and you want to give if you have important responsibilities but the thing is there's so many competent people to choose from that if you choose uh, if you decide okay well let's just go with like a woman in this case or let's just go with somebody then uh you're not really compromising quality because you had a hundred people that were amazing 
you know, qualify. But for me, actually, the issue, and I sort of, a little, I'd be interested to hear like what you think of this. But for me, the issue is actually fundamentally has nothing to do with multiculturalism or or feminism necessarily or diverse. For me, it comes to the heart of political legitimacy. Right when the Roman Empire was expanding, they were very very careful to have people who were senators, people in the military, who were uh, what we would, I mean, they did not have this conception at all, but uh, people that were from Africa, from North Africa, people who were from Germania, people with blonde hair and blue eyes, they made sure that it wasn't just nothing but ethnically, you know, Italian peninsula folk that (laughs) were running things because they understood that we, if we're going to be managing a large empire, we have to have legitimacy in the places where we are. And if they see this as just a foreign occupation and that their needs are not being uh, recognized, then we're going to have rebellions, which is not good because it's pain in the ass to have to deal with them, right? So I, I see when you have big nation states like the United States or Canada, from their inception, for people to say that this is something new is... I mean, either they're lying or they're just really ignorant of history because from the beginning, for instance, in Canada, this was kind of English, French. And so they were very, very careful to make sure there were French names in the cabinet. And you want it, you you would never, nobody would ever have nothing but English names in the cabinet. You would take people. And what is that? That's That's exactly like going for diversity, right? And in the United States, the reason why all the way you know, even to the present day, to some extent, they would have Southerners were way overrepresented as presidents and, you know, in cabinets because they really wanted to maintain a North-South balance, right? Now, obviously, slavery is totally, was totally evil and it's good that it was gone, but it's instructive, I think, to look at why the South um, broke away from the Union. They broke away from the Union because Lincoln could be elected in 1860 without even running in the South. He wasn't even on the ticket. And that sent a very clear message to them that, you know what, we can we can win without even paying attention to you. Right? Yeah. So when yeah. I see Trudeau going to the West and favoring pipelines, I think I don't think he has any illusions about ever um, being elected by those people. I think he's actually thinking more in terms of the good of the nation state that I need to let them know that I'm their prime minister too, right? And so I think in having a, a gender-balanced cabinet, what he's saying is, I'm. this is your government too, to half the population of Canada, saying this is your government. Do you understand? It's, it's an yeah. issue of like legitimacy. Like how do you, because if you saw this with the Bloc Québécois, with if people get, if any part of the nation state gets the sense that they are completely being ignored, and that they don't matter to the federal government, then why should we stay? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I I actually really think for all the problems that this government is having and, the, and there are bumps, I think that within people's um, Facebook friend list, <laughs> within their Twitter feed, um, there's an outcry over the pipelines. But when you look at the poll polling data, it shows that a lot of Canadians actually buy into the liberals line about it so it's um i think this government can weather a lot of these storms and i i would say probably they're headed they would be headed into another majority in the next election i that's my prediction um i think that um there was some that there was i I think jagmeet singh is is really a great guy 
and a really interesting choice, and I'm glad he got in. Um, but there is something, there was something to be said for the critics who said, well, he's not in Parliament, so he's not there, right? So somebody like Mulcair is having to get up and, and be fierce in Parliament and be ferocious and mm -hmm. be the attack dog in Parliament. You need, a, you need a presence in Parliament. I think that's hurting Singh. And the other thing is, to be perfectly blunt, I think that um, while there are some red meat-eating conservative Canadians, um, most Canadians look at what Trump is doing and recoil in horror. And if the, the Liberals can safely attach Sheer to a kind of Trump populism, I think that that will hurt Sheer. So I think that um, it's a little bit like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. There's just this fear of the really rabid um, Republicans, uh, you know, people, Canadians didn't like Nixon. Canadians didn't particularly like Reagan. Um, mm -hmm. Canadians were really against the invasion of Iraq when 70% of Americans were saying we have to do it. So mm -hmm. I think that there is something in the water here that just shifts that. So for all, I, I'm, I'm disturbed by the pipelines too, like a lot of people, but I think probably, and I'm, I'm not even sure I'm going to vote for him. I voted for Mulcair in the last election because it's, he was my local candidate and he stood the best chance of winning. Um, uh, over conservatives, so I voted for him, and I think he did. I think he did a good job. Yeah. So um, uh, I, like I may actually in the next election, and I, I can't believe if my mother's hearing this, she may be very mad at me. But I, I may, for the first time in my entire life, uh, vote liberal in the next election. I've voted NDP or Bloc Québécois or for separation, <laughs> but I, I was one of those Anglophones that voted yes uh, in the referendum. But um, yeah, I, I may actually vote liberal because i i'm not really crazy about saying i i think um you know he's he's very good looking <laughs> he's got he's you know if he if he's going to compete with trudeau in style he's uh he's maybe got a little of an edge on on trudeau they're both very sort of uh magazine cover ready but uh but yeah he he there's quite a few of his positions that trouble me i mean i i really am weirded out by the fact that he will not acknowledge that the biggest terrorist attack in Canadian history. He won't acknowledge who did it. That's weird. I mean, that's, you know, like if a politician gets up and says, you know, chemtrails are real or like, yeah. I question evolution. His take on Flight 182 is in the same category for me. It's a deal breaker. It's like something where if you say this, I, I, I shut off, right? People said he was being held to a double standard, and I understand that criticism. At the same time, if I was one of his handlers, I would have advised him to handle it entirely differently. You just, you immediately denounce it, and you denounce the group that did it, and you make it really clear right from the get-go. Like Obama did yeah. with his pastor. Right? Yeah. His pastor um, has, has some sort of very radical views, and he just immediately said, hey, I, I love this guy. He's an amazing pastor. I've profited from his wisdom a great deal over the years, but on this issue, we have never seen eye to eye, and I think he's dead wrong. Yeah, you need. And to it was so elegant; it wasn't mean. Yeah, it wasn't bitchy. You need, to it was, get a, you need to get ahead of that story right yeah, away. He just he just yeah. put that fire out yeah. before it started. I mean, like it's, and Singh hasn't, which is very odd. Yeah, I, mean, I uh, we'll see. I mean, again, it's it's hard to assess. Um, where he's at, because I don't see him when Parliament is debating, I don't, you know, and I think that some people were bringing that up and it got dismissed and he won. But I think I think that's I think that really is kind of hampering. Um, you, need, you need that visibility in Parliament, right? So Kimberly's actually running for his seat. So okay. if she if she oh. wins, it would be a liberal taking uh, not just, you know, an NDP seat, the NDP seat. 
like it's, she's run, she's running where? It's the the big riding that includes kind of uh, Côte de Neige, Plateau, Myland. It's like this big monster riding. Yeah. Oh, it's so like so Singh is running here. No, 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 he's running in a different one, but Montclair is stepping oh, down. Mon- okay, Montclair. And yes. so they're going to have okay. to go into a by-election for that seat, and she's running uh, for that. So if if a liberal wins Montclair's seat, that's going to be, a, I, I think, a big wake-up call to the NDP. That well, the, but it was unusual that Montclair won, right? That was usually traditionally a liberal seat, so it was rare. It, it was unusual that an NDP won that seat, so we'll see. But yeah. You're right, she's probably got a good chance. It's freaky. A lot of people say that we're living right now in a time of sort of reaction, that things are moving rightward in many places. I, I wonder, why do you think that when it comes to sort of um, gay and lesbian issues, it seems to be one of the few things that is not being rolled back? Obviously, Russia is an exception, but like in a lot of countries that have been having a, a right turn, you don't see any rollback of sort of gay rights. And I'm wondering, what do you think is going on with that? Like environmental rights are going way back. Yeah, that's like, true. Well, I think there was there's been enough of an advance that they know that that would probably be unpopular with a lot of people. But make no mistake, this is um, a big part of the battleground. I mean, Trump's support among evangelicals has gone up, even despite these scandals. And we know what Mike Pence wants. I mean, he he doesn't want any more. And if they could, they would they would just simply try to reverse the same sex marriage decisions and start taking licenses away, or at least stop issuing them and, you know, halt, put a halt to issuing them. They'll try to do that in the next few years. And, of course, trans people are paying, right? So there's a rollback on their rights. And the Trump administration has been really clear that they're not going to expand any of that and try to reverse the executive orders and stop trans people from serving the military. And the courts are doing their best. I mean, the courts are doing some pushback. But so it's it's hard to say, I mean, uh, I'm torn. On the one, on the one hand, some people say, "Well, it, it, the Trump thing, ha- it hasn't been quite as bad as everyone expected." So perhaps we, we were be overreacting when he, we first learned that he got elected. But other people are saying, "Well, we're kind of being lulled into a sense of complacency." I, my, my two. I main, don't see a lot of complacency. So mm, no, no, my, are pretty my, fired up. <laughs> my two main concerns are uh, obviously um, another 9/11, something like that, that would then give Trump. Um, would allow him to justify doing whatever the hell he wants, which is, I think, a real something that really does make me very, very keep me makes me lose sleep because that's really I, he's just not the person to have in charge, and he's you know replaced the people who were, I mean, the people who who look kind of sane, who normally I would say are completely insane, but the people around him who look kind of who look sort of relatively reasonable people, he just got rid of and has got Bolton by his side now. You know, somebody who's who said all sorts of incendiary things about using the bomb and so on and so forth. And of course, the other thing that worries me is that basically all of this rampant deregulation is exactly he's putting everything in place to have the exact kind of meltdown we had ten years ago. And if he's running the economy when it goes over a cliff, imagine you know he's not going to know what to do. He's not, uh, he's, he's not, apparently, he's, you know, probably worth just a few million. He's not even a billionaire. I mean, the million, yeah. the, the media ran with this line that he was a billionaire because he said so. But yeah. we, have, it, we haven't funny. seen you his know, tax returns. You know Game where of is Thrones? tax returns? You know, in Game of Thrones, <laughs> there's that one character. He's in the city and he's the richest man in the city. He's uh, like really tall, like 
black guy, always incredibly well-dressed, and he has a huge house, and he's trying to, like, woo Daenerys Targaryen to, to marry him. <sighs> and then there's that amazing scene where she shows up with a bunch of Dothraki-like warriors, and they force him to open up the vault, and it turns out he has no money. <laughs> you ever read that scene? Like, I, yeah. I saw that scene, and I immediately thought, this is why Trump is so desperately not wanting to, like, releases tax returns and stuff like that is because if the if they opened up the vault they would see there's nothing but debt in there that he probably doesn't actually have a lot yeah of no I, I'm, I think there's that and I think that um, you know he's also interesting we talked about Nixon but he's interesting as a sort of um, also a strange reflection of, of Reagan in that you know Reagan was the first president who'd been who'd been a member of both parties the Democrats and the Republicans, similar to Trump. And Andrew Breitbart, the founder of Breitbart, who's deceased for a few years now, he actually said he warned his readers and warned other people in the Republican Party, do not trust Donald Trump. Don't make him our leader. He was just praising Pelosi. The Clintons were guests at his wedding. Do not trust him. He's not one of us, right? Mm -hmm. He's slippery. So um, his slipperiness ha seems to have some appeal to people, but it as we see with Nixon, if you make enough enemies, Nixon was disliked enough in the party that that could also lead to a very quick, um, you know, stabbing in the back of, of Trump. We'll see. I think he'll probably serve out at least his first term. And I, you know, I think, God, there's no way they could reelect him. But they reelected Bush, and I thought that was crazy, too. So <laughs> they do. They reelected Nixon. I do. So Americans do all sorts of sordid things politically. So there's no telling what could happen. I mean, we could be in for a really nasty eight-year run. Yeah, I, it's funny because James Comey at the end of his book, um, after sort of trashing Trump and saying all the ways in which he thinks he's terrible, he very, very clearly says, I I think it would be terrible if we impeached um, Trump. I think he said, I think the, the American voters, that would be letting them off the hook for electing this guy. And Comey says, actually, no, the American voters need to vote him out. He should, they should not, impeaching him is, is allowing them to get away with this and it's also allowing his supporters to have a ready-made kind of conspiracy theory right that we the deep state like took it took us down or something like that right which is an interesting interesting take on it right but i just circle back to something else you sort of made your your reputation on writing on film criticism but a lot of people say right now um, that we're and I, I agree with this that we're living in the golden age of television and that one of the reasons why uh, and my friends who are novelists, I'm sorry if I'm insulting you right now, but um, I, one of the reasons why a lot of people think that um, novel fiction right now is is not, you know, there's some nice nice stuff out there, but for the most part, it's not great. And the argument I always hear is because all of the really great writers are writing for Netflix and HBO, that uh, you know this has depleted the quality of of written fiction this is depleted uh, even movies like film film scripts so i mean to what extent have you have you shifted your focus more to to television or do you still focus on on movies oh i that's absolutely true i mean everything you just said and i definitely um you know if somebody said to me would you rather watch Big Little Lies again, or would you rather watch The Shape of Water again? I would take Big Little Lies in an instant, right? I just think that the television writing yeah. has gotten... It's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. There's so much good stuff on mm -hmm. television now. It's it's it's, And it really is hard to impress upon my students, because they've grown up, they're obviously, you know, in their early 20s now, a lot of them, 
just how seismic a shift that is. Because I mean, I you remember when we were kids? When I was a kid, I mean, people we said, were kids at the same time. <laughs> yeah, people said, you know, oh, you're younger than I am, but uh, people said. Uh, I think it was Mordecai Richler said it's fitting that television is a, called a medium because it could never be very good. And, you know, it was just it, if you ended up on television as an actor, you were on your way down. Yeah, probably. Or maybe on your way up or or on your way down. You were this was something you were doing as a pension. Mm hmm. Uh, and now it's just like night and day, you know. And one of the things that I really appreciate about it is uh, it's, it's great to watch a lot of the shows. But I think something that's come with that shift, and it's a really important one, is that um, for many years, for decades, uh, if you were a woman of a certain age, you were just put out to pasture, you know, like fade on away. Even Jane Fonda, who had her own production company, had difficulty in her 40s keeping her career maintained. And what I really love about all of this great television um, is that, like Homeland and American oh, Horror Story show. and all these shows much richer writing for women characters and allowing women who are um, middle-aged and older to have good parts. And that is something I really appreciate about a lot of this. This it, Big Little Lies is a great example. And that was, you know, that was uh, uh, Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman saying, look, this book is really good and let's, you know, let's hire a good director, you know, Jean-Marc Vallée, let's, let's get this going. We've got the star power. We can make this happen. And, and it's just it, really, really, really powerful with, a, you know, great feminist theme, but not poorly written, really well written. The kind of thing you want to see, you know, that you really want to see and see again. So that's something that I think I really celebrate in that shift. And it's, of course, you know, everyone says, oh, there's always the Golden Globe Oscars thing. And a lot of the, th the reason why the Golden Globe is more interesting is because just because it includes television. So mm -hmm. people want to see who's going to get the TV awards, right? Not, yeah. And the Oscars doesn't do that. So film film has become, and sadly, become a lot less. I mean, there were good films this past year, but it's a lot less interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, part of it is just a function of time, right? So you, um, one of the most annoying, <laughs> I, I have, I, I'm, I'm peevish, but I have like a long list that I've compiled over the years. It's up, it's up to like 130 now, but of sort of most annoying expressions in the English <laughs> language. And one of my most annoying expressions is, uh, the book is better than the movie. I've, I've always hated that. And, and the reason my objection to it always was the author has your attention for, you know, 17 hours, 20 hours, whereas the, the screenwriter has your attention for, you know, an hour and a half. Right. So obviously they have to compress this story a great deal, simplify a lot of things, reduce things to sort of formulas. But what's fascinating about TV right now is that you actually you can have the 17 hours. So you have the audience's attention for as long as the, the novelist had your attention. And so now it's a fair fight. And what's fascinating to me is that the the TV wins most of the time. I mean, I can the most obvious example is Game of Thrones, right? I've read all of the the novels, and the novels are fun. They're great. The show is better written. It's actually better. The screen, it, in every respect, the characters are are more interesting. If you just listen without even you know watching the show, just listen to the dialogue. It's better than the book. So now you can actually say with a straight face uh, the the show is better than the book. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, well, it's it's it, I mean there's all that 
debate about adaptation and for a long time, you know, it just felt like, well, a crummy book makes a great movie like Jaws <laughs> or something, you know. But I, I think that um, I think that's that's an interesting reflection on, on that show in particular. And also, I think something that I find really interesting in terms of adaptation is a novel like a dystopic novel like The Handmaid's Tale and what they've done to it, how they've <sighs> how they've um, updated it yeah, for for current times. And I think I think that's really, really, really fascinating. Yeah, they've made it much more sort of plausible as as something that could happen now, right? Even, I mean, Margaret Atwood's novel is fantastic, but there's ways even at the time where I think she was, there's some parts that just didn't ring true. It seemed a little too fantastic. Whereas now, because they're producing it in real time in these times, they can set it up in a way where it's entirely plausible that this could this could happen. Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, the update of Westworld, you know, now from the TV, from the movie to the TV series, it's like uh, so much more plausible because of everything that's happening with AI and robots. So it's it's even. I mean, I didn't. I really preferred the original, but um, the, the remake of RoboCop, the first ten minutes, is really chilling. It's basically about you know a RoboCop being sent into the Middle East and trying to determine who's a terrorist and who they're going to shoot. And like, that's just completely where almost where we're at. It's yeah. basically, we're almost there. And I, so I find that really, really fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask you was, uh, what is it like, um, to teach film? I mean, to teach like as film being your text, right. Rather than kind of novels or textbooks or to have, films as your text what is that what is that like well it's it's i've never done it so okay well yeah. it's a, it's a really fantastic gift usually you know usually it's really really fun because if the students are on board and i hard, i'd hard to imagine them they're bored when i'm showing them such great movies but uh <laughs> it's uh you know i've read your reviews they love you and they say you swear a lot oh <laughs> oh dear oh no well the actually I, i'm gonna out you right now sebastian sebastian the producer of this podcast actually took a class with uh, professor hayes Very so good. He's very good. <laughs> what was the class that you took? It was the documentary class, uh, Minority. Okay, Minority Representation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I just <laughs> taught. I just taught that again. That's a great. That's a fun class to teach. I got. Yeah. They design. I designed that one myself, so that was good. No, I mean it, it's a it's a great gift, and it's. Uh, I feel very lucky, and generally the students are if they're intrigued. If you if you're showing a student something that they've never seen before and you're really turning them on to something that that can feel really really just fun you know I'm teaching I start in May teaching a, a horror film class I've taught every year oh, nice. every spring at Concordia um, for this must be the eighth or ninth year I've done it and I, I just really enjoy it I love the genre and I love just picking apart the movies with the students and a lot of the students nicest thing is someone will say after a screening or after a class will just come up and say I didn't even know that film existed. <laughs> you know, thank you for showing it to me because it really, like, it's really altered my sense of where a movie could go or, you know, it's really fascinating. So that, it's a very rich medium that way. Um, it's it's a lot of fun to teach. Yeah. Uh, have it, you thought, of, have you transitioned at all or do you intend to transition at all into covering some of these sort of amazing TV shows? Like, Yeah, I mean, in, in, uh, in communication studies, when I've taught basic writing for the media, I've showed like uh, television, like like the classic sitcoms like Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family, I've shown them to pick, kind of pick apart what how shows were political back then. Uh, interestingly, they all relate to Archie Bunker. They all see him as an archetype less than they do Mary Richards. Um, uh, and I've certainly shown uh, clips of The Sopranos and The Wire, you know, mm -hmm. is when you look at um, 
mafia representations, you know, then you definitely look at The Sopranos. And the other thing that I t talk about with The Sopranos, because many of them have seen it, some haven't, but many have, is that when I, I, I tell a little anecdote, you know, when I heard they were doing The Sopranos, the show, and I heard what it was about, I was like, well, that I'm just not even going to bother watching it because Coppola and Scorsese have done everything, have said everything that you could say about, about a mob family. Like, yeah. I don't need to see it. And I was just so dead wrong. I mean, it shows that you can always bring even to material that might seem stale. And of course, the genius of that show is like this domestic setting, right? This family and mm -hmm. all the issues that a family faces, but with they're in the mob. I mean, yeah. I just thought that was it was so brilliant and, and sim simple in a way, um, but really clever, right? So yeah, you have you have to talk about it, and you have to you have. They to. should have ended it like a couple seasons before they did, though. It got really washed out. You felt? Um, toward, yeah, if they had done sort of, I, for instance, I the obvious comparison for me is with Six Feet Under. I mean, Six Feet Under did everything that they could do with the characters, and they did it, you know, beautifully. And then when they were done, they just rode off into the sunset and, you know, left on a on a really, really high note. They didn't overplay their hand, whereas I feel like uh, Sopranos really overplayed their hand and it got very washed out and became kind of a parody of itself towards the end. It was, it, it was annoying. It like, did. It was always a very self-conscious show, right? Like episode one had the Scorsese cameo, <laughs> right? Like, and, yeah. there, and the, many of the cast of the Sopranos were, or of, of Goodfellas were in it. Yeah. So, um, but no, I, I, it's funny. I really, I really, I think one of the things that I thought the final episode was very gutsy, but the second to last episode, I couldn't really breathe while I was watching. It was when they were like pulling guns out yeah. of the ceiling and they were on the lamb and it, it, the whole episode is them just fleeing, right? Yeah. They're gonna, they know they're marked. Yeah. And I, I thought second to last episode, I mean, I had bad dreams after that and I watched it. I mean, it was like, it really yeah. impacted me. Yeah, that was good. That one was good. Yeah, no, there were there were ones that were, and then I thought that the, the, the there was a really crushing one with the character who who's gay and is just goes to the nightclub and then the guys are making a delivery and they see him. And so then he's marked, right? I mean, mm -hmm. like there were these subplots that were really the, the the way that the show could digress and show us one character for an episode or two, and then something would happen, be off or something would yeah. we'd never see them again. I thought that was that's one of the great things. So you about, show you show some of that stuff because I remember at Harvard, William Julius Wilson, a uh, very scandalous move. He decided in his sort of race and American culture class to not assign any text, any like textbooks any books he had them just watch the wire and <laughs> that was their text was the wire and they would have and he would give these really really uh, long and there were some people who thought what this is really devaluing higher education like you're just gonna watch tv the whole time and and his point was like no we're gonna take this text very seriously because it's actually a really well written and brilliant text yeah like why do you think this is inferior to you know, some monograph. Well, like. that's, I mean, that's a very odd, the reaction to that is so odd. I mean, there were, there were museums and art galleries that wouldn't show photography for well into the 20th century, you know? I mean, there's always sort of resistance to these new media, and, and it's strange. I mean, people are teaching classes in analyses of video games, and I mean, there's all sorts of different mm -hmm. things that we should be looking at. I mean, that was kind of the point of genre analysis and a lot of cultural studies was to say, well, if it's popular, we should be looking at why it's popular, right? Mm -hmm. So, and pornography too, we should be looking at these tropes. I just did, when I did alternative journalism, we did a couple of classes in pornography, right? Mm -hmm. Documentaries about pornography and different takes on pornography. It, it, the, we have to talk about it. It's part of alternative press. So I thought that was an important thing to look at. So, and do you find, I mean, in teaching on, on movies, because this is something that my friend Fred uh, Bodie saw, 
professor at Concordia in the history department, and he teaches American film. And he's mentioned this to me, and I've heard this from other people as well. Do, do you find that um, that students sort of come into the class and expect it to be sort of easy? Uh, or do you think they, do they come in with a, a good attitude or a bad, like they're willing to sort of look at these things as important texts or? Well, I think that's a good point. Uh, and I'm probably guilty at Marinopolis. Marinopolis, I'm guilty of making it probably, as you my, my ratings on uh, rate my instructor. <laughs> I make it, I'm probably make it a little too easy. I'm, I'm aware that, that that's a hyper competitive school and that the students are being pushed a lot of times. Um, and I, and there's a lot of pressure there for them. So I do make it, and there's a difference because they're taking it as an option. They may never go on and take another film class. So I'm just making the class as inviting and fun as I can. Okay. The teaching film at Concordia is a little bit different in that I'm teaching within a film school. So people have come specifically to study film as a discipline. So film studies. So then, you know, then it's. It's, I'm 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 a bit of a communist. I just want everyone to have an A and have fun. <laughs> so the thing is that what I have to do, what I have with my larger classes, is I have the pri the privilege and good luck and for good fortune to have a TA who does the majority of the grading. I mean, I supervise it, but what that does is that kind of creates a kind of bad cop buffer for me, which mm -hmm. I need because I I will I just tend to grade. It'll just up. be like Lake Wobegon. I you know? the I, women are strong, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. I tend to <laughs> yeah, I, there's that. I tend to just grade too easily, so I kind of need uh, a buffer that way. A vice principal, something yeah. like that. A principal Skinner. <laughs> I need someone someone to uh, to to help me because I'm not very good at getting in touch with my inner fascist, and I just tend. to... <laughs> To want the class to be a good time. So, yeah. uh, and I think that's important. It's important to be drawing the students into the material, but it's, you have to draw the line somewhere. You can't just give everybody a good grade. I mean, people have to work for it and all the rest of it. And I know all that, that baggage that I've got. So, uh, but it definitely, it's, it's different at the two institutions, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, you're, if you're teaching a seminar, a four or 500 level seminar in communication studies, that's entirely different in terms of the level of theory and things that you're yeah. applying and throwing out. And also, out they're students. just, they're taking two or three classes in the semester, whereas with SAGEP students, they're taking, you know, maybe seven or eight. I, it's a, yeah. Right? So it's, they're, they're juggling a lot more balls. It's so you can't it's, it's, ask as much of them. It's really a lot. And it's something we have to come back to at the college level and CGEP level is that we are putting the students under a lot of pressure. And I think it's something that we, that comes up at meetings. We have to talk about how we're managing that and how we're making sure the students are, because um, they should be working hard, I know, but they're young. They should also be enjoying their education having fun yeah. i usually just try to impart upon them i mean i'm kind of a scam because i mean i'm you know write about <laughs> films and teach films for a living so it's yeah. just ludicrous really i mean someone's gonna find out they're gonna take me out and shoot me in the town square because it's a scam <laughs> but the thing is is that uh, i try to impart upon them that you know i worked really hard so that i can can do something i enjoy yeah. there's a difference between having a career and a job you want to do something that you can that you can like mm -hmm. you know so and you can have fun so um you can work really hard and still be having a good time. That's, I mean, it's corny, but that's tr usually what I try to impart upon the students. You know, don't go into something if it's if if it's something your parents have told you should do or you feel like you should do because you're going to make money if it makes you miserable. Yeah, I know a lot of people with law degrees who walked away from law, perfect, perfect, you know, practicing law because they didn't like it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go through all of that torture of going through school, it's a lot of work. You should try to figure out something that you're that you really enjoy. That you really ask, yeah. Yeah, where, you, where well, do you want to be in I, 10 I got, years? I got to tack on just one more question. This will we'll close with this, but um, what are you working on right now? Like, what are you, what are you, 
What are you uh, What are you writing right now? What are you working on? Well, what are you excited about right now? Well, Tom Waugh and I, Tom Waugh is my mentor who just retired last year at, uh, or this year at Concordia, film studies professor, and an amazing person, uh, really incredibly well-published academic. He and I have had a book series we've been doing for 12 years um, called The Queer Film Classics. We've done about 18 titles. So our last book in the series, it is a finite series on Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger's landmark uh, short, uh, experimental film. Um, we're, we're editing that manuscript right now by an American academic called Robert Cagle, who's really a great guy and a wonderful writer. So we're very excited about that, but that's our, fast, our last book in that title. And then I'm doing um, a Truth Be Told Conversations with Documentary Filmmakers. That's my next book. Um, but I'm also working on a horror screenplay with Noam Gonick. Um, I've never done screenwriting before. So yeah, so we're working on that. The Winnipeg based queer filmmaker. We're working on that. Um, and so I've got a few projects that I'm, that I'm working on, but because of what's happened in journalism, which actually is really depressing and it's yes. kind of gone over a cliff. I, I didn't, I didn't ask you about that. No, I know it's such we a could sad, go on sad, for another, we go on for another hour, but yeah, I, there's, there's it's not been enough, very sad. Yeah. But, uh, crying to my beer over that. But anyways, <laughs> that's been, that's been a real drag that that's happened. But yeah. what, it, what it's meant is that I've had to shift a lot of my focus onto more teaching. And so this last semester, for example, I had between the two, Marianopolis and Cordia had five classes. So that didn't leave me, that doesn't always leave me as much time as I would like for the writing, you know? So yeah. I used to have a really good balance of writing and teaching, maybe two, three classes a week, and then I would write the rest of the time. So now it's, um, it, it's uh, I have a couple articles on the go that I've got to do that I'm usually pretty exhausted by the end of two weeks because I'm like, you know, in every spare moment I have, I'm researching and writing when I'm not teaching. So that's just, that's the way it rolls. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This thank was a real delight. Thanks and I, for having me. I would me. like to do this again in the future. Absolutely. Sure. So, yes, if you would like to support the Likeville podcast, please like us on iTunes. That's a, a great. Please subscribe on iTunes. Um, and also, you know, share our podcast with your friends, even with your enemies. Um, uh, and also, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do so through Patreon. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye for now.